Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. I don't normally lead worship, but I was just saying, last time I led worship, it was like overhead projectors where you had to put a, like a slide on it and it was upside down and back to front and the wrong way around and then that's the last time. So I'm subjecting you to me, more of me. Um, forgive me. But we're going to worship in, in a minute. Um, but uh, just let me talk briefly a little bit about what we think worship is here at the church, why we think it's so important, etc. These first few weeks, as Hannah said, are really just about getting back into the swing of things, and it's going to be a process. Um, I know that some people still will not feel safe about being here. Some people will be a bit anxious about those sorts of things. We're just slowly building back um, uh, as we all get used to this new world order. And last week, Hannah talked about uh, returning to a sense of uh, community in in God's family. And this week, as I said, I'm talking about returning to worshiping together. Now, since the beginning of time, God's people have gathered together to sing songs of worship together. And really, worship is fundamental to the Christian life. There's no getting around of it. To be a Christian is to be a worshiper of the living God. And worship, of course, isn't just a communal experience. You can worship by yourself in your bedroom, as maybe some people have been doing over the last year and then going, I really can't do this anymore. It's too weird. Uh, But it's not just communal. And of course, worship isn't just about singing. It can take lots of different forms. But singing songs all together as a group of people, as a church, is something that is core to this church's ethos, as I kind of think it should be core to every church's ethos. And let me say this. It does not really matter if you are not a singer or not a musician. Because worship, properly understood, isn't really about the sounds we're making out of our voices. It's about our hearts. It's about our orientation. It's about where we are focused. It's about being orientated towards God. So it's not just our voices. It's our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our whole beings. One of my um, favorite gigs ever was um, a thing called Live 8 um, in Hyde Park in London. Now, if you... You probably, I don't know whether you know this. There was a huge concert in Philadelphia at the same time. So it was the 20th anniversary of Live Aid, which was set up by Bob Geldof. If you were born after 1985, so all of you apart from Ryan at the back, uh, then you might not know who Bob Geldof was. He's basically, he was, is, always will be kind of an old rocker. And he decided to put on this huge gig in Wembley Stadium, and it was kind of also uh, um, in Philadelphia, in JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, for um, 
raising money for the famine that was kind of wreaking havoc in Ethiopia. And he got an incredible lineup together. And then they repeated the feat. And if you've seen Bohemian Rhapsody, the film, you'll know that Queen had that sort of seminal performance there, greatest performance of all time. Don't really like Queen. My kids love Queen for some reason. I do not understand. They love Queen, they love Blur, and they love uh, Megan Trainer. Who knew? Anyway, um, Live Aid, which is the... <laughs> Stick to the point. Live Aid was this um, 20th, 20th anniversary celebration of it. And in Hyde Park, there were 200,000 people in the middle of London. Uh, one of the biggest gigs of all time in Philadelphia, there was something like a, a million and a half. And the lineup was extraordinary. It's extraordinary for someone who's old like me. You too. Uh, Coldplay, don't like Coldplay. Uh, who else was there? Um, I wrote it down. Okay, I'm gonna, just going to read this, and you can be either impressed or like, you're so old. You two, Paul McCartney, Elton John, Coldplay, Madonna, R.E.M., Pink Floyd, Lauren Hill, Bon Jovi, P. Diddy, Sting, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Stevie Wonder, and Dido. Uh, so anyway, it was a huge, huge lineup. But the moment I remember the most was not, actually not any of those sort of superstar acts. It was a band called The Killers, who are obviously quite big now, but at the time, their album had just come out, and they were still quite obscure, but they were kind of the hippest, coolest band around. I know they're now a bit weird and bad, but then, amazing. But not everyone knew them, but they did an amazing set, and they totally won over 200,000 people who maybe had not heard them before, and they won them over, and the sun was setting, Beautiful summer's day in London, the middle of Hyde Park, and the sun's just going down, and 200,000 people are going, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. I got soul. And everyone's just hands in the air. Grown men weeping, children weeping, everyone just singing this song. Imagine if there weren't 200,000 people, if there was just me. Less powerful, less emotive, less good. And so you see the point of everyone gathering together to sing and to be of one mind and one spirit. And if we replace what is a questionable pun of a lyric with actually lyrics about the true living God, and everyone is singing, we worship you, you can see the power of coming together for worship. And it's something that we are always going to be going after here at Bread. There is power in being of one mind and one spirit, whether it's 200,000 people, two people, or 100 people. There is power. But before we get to this destination of ecstatic, lost in wonder and praise and love, worship, we have to acknowledge, don't we, where we are starting from. And I know that for many of us, maybe all of us, right now, that is going to be starting from a position probably of some anxiety. So what are you worried about? This year, like no other year, has fostered anxiety. It has kind of bubbled it up under the surface. It's made us anxious about things we never knew that we were anxious about or didn't even know exist. Now, thank God that this country is coming back to normality, that uh, we're opening up, that we don't have to necessarily wear masks outside, etc. Lots of people got the vaccine. But the residuals of what we have gone through are still there to make us anxious. The losses that we've received 
about people, about jobs, about money, about family, about all these things, we are recovering. And so it's completely understandable if you are feeling still somewhat anxious. I'll be honest uh, with you, Hannah and I spent most of this week going, I think we opened the church up too soon. Ah, we can't go back. Well, let me read Psalm 27, which is a psalm of David, who, despite being around about 3,000 years ago, knew a thing or two about anxiety and what to do with it and how to worship. This is uh, verse 1 to 4. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I'm just going to grab my water. So, lesson one in how to worship. Don't fake it. This is actually a startlingly real and powerful piece of writing. David is holding no punches. And this has to be the starting point for us at all times, whenever, in life actually in general, but especially when it comes to church, where the temptation or the pressure maybe to fake it, to pretend that we're really good Christians when we're not, is quite strong. Pretense, though, is going to get us nowhere. There is a struggle underlying so much of life. You see it in the way people speak to each other, Beneath the politeness, are they actually just wanting something out of you? Do they think they could, you could help them with the, their career? Are they trying to get something from you? You see it when, with Hannah and I at the school gates. Everyone's trying to pretend that they are completely fine with just having got out of bed and none of their children are dressed. But, you know, they look wonderful and everything's great. And you see it, of course, in our Instagram lives where we tell everyone this is what we're like, but we're really not. There is an underlying struggle to life, but unless we acknowledge it, what is in theological terms the not yet of the kingdom, the broken, stressful, anxious-making, painful side of life, we are not being true to the reality of our world or to the reality of ourselves. And it's very important to be true to both of those things. It's why I have a kind of problem with inspirational quotes about um, fear. You'll have seen these maybe posted on different places. Things like, what you fear may never happen. Visualize a future where fear does not exist. And my personal favorite, fear is a liar. Now, of course, some fear is a liar, but some fear really tells you the truth. For instance, if I am scared about putting my head in a shark, I shouldn't, a shark's mouth, I shouldn't necessarily go, but fear is a liar. If I then put my head in a shark's mouth, yes, I have overcome my fear. I have lost my fear, but I have also lost my head. Fear often actually tells us the reality of things. Now, of course, God does not want us to live with any fear, and this is really the fear that people are talking about when they say fear is a lie. Don't want us to live scared and anxious about life. 
as you may know, the most repeated command in the Bible is, do not be afraid. Fear and God cannot really coexist. But insisting that the threats to us are not real and the consequences of them will not necessarily negatively affect us is not actually going to do us any good. Pretending there's nothing to be worried about is not what God wants for us. What he wants, and this is the important point, is that we bring it to him. Be like David. He acknowledges it head on. Verse 2, evil men may advance against me to devour my flesh. Enemies and foes may attack me. Verse 3, an army may besiege me. A war may break out against me. Now, all of those things actually did happen to David. And also, in verse 10, which I didn't read out, he says, though my father and mother may forsake me, which didn't, as far as we know, happen to him. But what he's doing is he's getting it all out there. He's basically going, how many bad things could happen? What happens if my car breaks down as well? What happens if my phone explodes? What happens if my hair recedes? What happens if my hair grows gray? How bad could it be? He's getting it all out there. That was a joke. I've got gray hair. Come on, guys. He's getting it all out there. So do not fake it. What are you worried about? But lesson two, having got it out there, choose. And this is an act of the will. Choose to take it and yourself to the presence of the living God. This is the difficult step because we quite like wallowing in our feelings sometimes, don't we? Or we quite like avoiding our feelings. But if we have to acknowledge our feelings, that's one thing. If we have to take them to God, oh my goodness, that will require a little bit of faith, won't it? But see that David, despite all his real and imagined fears, what he is not is fearful. He is not anxious. He is not worried. Instead, verse 3, I am confident. And remember, this is life-threatening stuff he's talking about. But even then, he is confident. Verse 4, and this is why, because he's going to the house of God. Now, for David, this is not actually about physically being present in the temple. Uh, in fact, the only people who could live in the temple were the priests, and they weren't allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Um, but it's about going to the presence of the living God. It's about being face-to-face -face with God in his presence. In fact, the Hebrew word for presence actually means face. So David is not just talking about the vicinity of God, kind of being floating around on the outside. He's talking about being right up there, seeing him. And in seeing him, David gazes upon his beauty. Now, this, very important point, is poetic language. We would do very well not to mistake it for sexual or physical beauty. Now, this is a personal bugbear of mine, so I'm just going to talk about this for a little minute. Often, Christians have made that mistake, and they've written songs that sort of describe God a little bit like, well, Jesus usually, as boyfriend. Hello, boyfriend, I love you, you're so beautiful. This is not right. It is a misunderstanding of Song of Solomon's, which is just a sex love poem between two people. 
It's not about God. Don't make it about God. It doesn't mention God. It is just about two people being in love, talking about sex. That's fine. It's in the Bible because God likes it. But it doesn't mean that we then translate that to talking about God as my beautiful boyfriend. That is not what it means. Okay? Got that? Good. Choose never to do that again. What beauty means here is perfection. It means otherworldly awesomeness. It's why the presence of God eats up all our anxiety and worry. It's why the presence of God is like some sort of stress-gobbling monster where our fears, our worries fall by the wayside because we are in the presence of perfection. We are in the presence of the living God, the one whom we are made for. We get anxious as a direct result of something not perfect taking the place of God's perfection in our lives. And we go after those things, and when they are satisfying us, they are satisfying us. But when they start to break at the seams, we suddenly get very anxious because they're not enough. They are not good enough for us. Even good things can be that, whether they're relationships or calling or jobs or whatever. And then we start to worry. Is this career going to satisfy me? Is this relationship going to be enough? Is this success as stable as I need it to be? We're absolutely right. None of them are, because what we are looking for, hardwired into our bodies and minds and souls, is perfection. And this is what David knows well. Incredibly rich, incredibly successful David. Knew everything. Was the king was one after God's own heart. He knew the only place worth going to was the presence of God. I've got a couple of quotes here. Do you want to hear quotes? One's from Jessica Alba. Even the most beautiful people think they're not beautiful enough. She said this, My breasts are saggy. I've got cellulite. My hips are big. Every actress out there is more beautiful than me. Even the most successful people are unsatisfied. Ronnie O'Sullivan, who you may not know, is a snooker player. You say snooker. I do not know why you say snooker. It's snooker. Snooker. Anyway, he's a snooker player. He's like... Uh, um, LeBron and Jordan mixed into a kind of cigarette-smoking, whiskey-drinking snooker player. And he was the top of his game, absolute genius. But he said this, the relentless pursuit of perfection has been my problem over the years. It's held me back and ruined my life. Even the most successful people are not satisfied by their success. Nothing else that we go after will satisfy like the presence of God. And this is what happens when we enter into his presence. Everything is reorientated in us. We see things as they're supposed to, as supposed to be seen. We put him in his rightful place. We see ourselves 
in the light of his love and his goodness and his power and his mercy. And all the things that we have God anxious and worried about, they can fall by the wayside because we've got him. Now, of course, worship's not actually really about us, despite everything I've just said at all. We're so wonderfully self-related, aren't we? We love to make things about us. But worship is the one thing that's really not about us at all. It's about him. It's always been about him. But we like to talk about ourselves. It's all about me, Jesus, and all this is for me. Songs about us, of which there seem to be quite a few in the um, Christian sphere. Whatever they are, they are not worship. Because they're about us. I'm going to climb the highest mountain. I'm going to do all this. I'm amazing. Thank you, God, for helping me be amazing. I'm so amazing. That is not worship. I don't know what it is, but it's not worship. Worship is about him. And David doesn't want to make it about him. He wants to make it about God. But, of course, for David, there was always the threat that the presence of God would not be his. There was the threat that God might remove his face from him. There was the threat that actually God's presence, his holiness, was so extraordinary that David would be burnt up. But for us, that is not the case because of one man, because of Jesus of Nazareth, who gave up all the beauty, all the magnificence, all the wonder, and became ugly, became bruised and battered. People were appalled by him. The Son of God lost all of his beauty and was disfigured. Why? Because of perfection, because of his perfect love. His perfect love for you, for me. And in his presence, we receive that love. It's excellent. It is satisfying. It is everything that we are dying for. We are craving, we are looking for, wherever we go. It's what we're made for. We will not be burned up by God's perfection. We will be renewed and redeemed by it. We will be healed by it. When we worship, we are moving from knowing about God to knowing God. We're moving from knowing that God is holy to experiencing this holiness, this burning fire. It can be a little bit scary, actually, the perfection of God. It's the difference between knowing God loves you and experiencing his love. My job would be so much easier if I could find a way for people just to actually not just know that God loves them, but to experience God's love. It's the difference between knowing you are forgiven and experiencing being who he has made you to be, a pure, spotless bride. Wiping away all those stains that you want to tell him about yet again and knowing that he has done it all. He has removed it all so that you can stand and look at him face to face and go, my father, and he can go, my son, my daughter, the one who I love, my child. It's the difference. It's the difference between knowing you've been adopted by God and experiencing his parenting. 
making up for all the ways in which your parents or your parental figures did not do that for you. This is what happens in the presence of God. This is what happens. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a mother to the motherless. He's there for you. So, to end, what are you worried about? What is making you anxious? If there is another thing, then great. But what are you worried about? Bring it to him. Take it to the presence of God who will care for you. Cast everything onto him because he cares for you. Because in the presence of God, that is where we meet him in his love and in his power. A friend of mine um, tells a story about going to a tiny little church in the north of England. The north of England is a rainy, cold, unhospitable place with people who have accents that you cannot understand. And in this tiny little church, they were all singing together. And then someone, there was suddenly this kind of commotion, excitement, and someone screamed out from the back, I've been healed. I've been healed. I've been healed. My friend who was leading the thing was going, um, how do you know? Him of little faith. How do you know you're healed? And the guy says, well, because I was born mute. And now I am singing praises to the living God. This is what happens. Isn't that extraordinary? This is what happens in the presence of God. We meet him in his love. We meet him in his power. Don't we desperately needed all the time that's a rhetorical question but the answer is yes so that's what we're going to do now as you'll have heard um, I'm leading worship I know um, but what we're going to do the four of us we're just going to worship God up there and we're going to ask you to join us in worshipping him you don't have to but I would give it a go. Don't worry about your voice. You've got a mask on anyway. No one can hear you. But sing out from your heart. Worship is about our heart's response. I've always loved a little picture that a friend of mine used to have of a kind of gathering like this where everyone was singing. And he just saw Jesus walking around the room, placing his ear not to people's mouths, but to their hearts and listening to their hearts. So, give it a go. Let's worship together and let's welcome the presence of God. Good? Good.